Hey everyone, Libba Beecham here to introduce our second episode featuring an oral history interview specifically about the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on seniors. This interview is with Dana Chapman, the former executive director of ITN Lanier, which provided transportation for seniors prior to their closing due to the pandemic. This interview really opened my eyes to the ways in which this pandemic has affected seniors and the ways in which we can still connect to the seniors in our local community. Here is Dana Chapman. The organization that I was most recently employed with is now closed permanently due to COVID. It was a very successful transportation service for seniors who no longer drive. And we were actually helping some folks who were driving during the day and maybe not in the evening. So it was um, specialty transportation for seniors in that it was one passenger at a time, one car, one rider at a time, one driver at a time, Um, not a bus service or a fixed route service. It was one car taking one person to one appointment. And it was arm in arm and door through door. So that meant that the seniors who were riding with us were very safe. They were able to get out of their house safely, lock the door, make sure they had everything they needed, get to the appointment on time. And many seniors who are not able to drive themselves feel an incredible amount of anxiety about making it on time to the right place because they need medical appointments. And for everyone, medical appointments are stressful anyway. So this service was really something that kept them more emotionally safe and physically safe. It was dependable. It was organized. It was, I called it organized neighbors helping neighbors. It it was scheduled and we handled the logistics in the office, but it was really building friendships too. And as the pandemic in our area got too dangerous, the situation became too dangerous really quickly between March 1st and March 15th, 2020. And we saw it with all of our rides and drives. And I was driving myself a lot and my manager was driving a lot. And we were all seeing just how frightening it was becoming for the medical providers we were seeing with our folks. We were seeing the routine places for personal care like hair and nail salons become confusing, disorganized, and dangerous for our folks and for the providers there. Everything was grinding to a halt, and there was a lot of information missing about what we should do. Fortunately for us, for a while, we were able to stop serving everyone, period, close it down for about two weeks, and then we worked with other affiliate offices of the same service that are located across the country, and some of those folks had come to the pandemic a little earlier, and they had already developed protocols for how to make the rides work and how to keep people safe while they were driving them, the drivers safe and the riders. So we were able to get some help from our network in terms of how to build a protocol, but it also took a lot of thought locally. And fortunately, we recruited at that time, Dr. Ron Beebe to come on board our advisory committee. And he and I worked several days uh, together on a protocol and, came to think it through together and decide on, you've got to think about all kinds of little details like seat belts and door handles and shoes and what the person is carrying. Because at the time, we weren't really sure about the transmission 
of the virus. So there was a, there were a lot of, you know, unanswered questions and a lot to be thought about. But once we did put the protocol in place, it, uh, we, okay, keep in mind, we had gone from 35 rides every day in Hall County seven days a week. Weekends were a little bit lighter because weekends were for church and social appointments and things, but for the most part, 30 rides a day. So from 30 to zero, and then we crept back slowly with three rides in a week. And what we were finding was that our drivers who were wonderful volunteers, who mostly retired folks who were all becoming aware of their own um, autoimmune underlying conditions, other things that were putting them at risk for COVID-19. They were coping with that realization in their life and they were becoming more isolated very quickly. And so were our riders just becoming isolated, some by choice, but some through being locked down in the facility where they were living. And one of the sad but fascinating things that I came to understand a lot more about through this was the fact that most of our really good retirement communities like assisted living and personal care homes, the larger corporate run, beautiful welcoming facilities with lots of things built into the lifestyle. And also there are quite a few all over the country, private small homes where Mr. Miss Jones decided to take in some seniors and they might have six or seven folks living in their ranch home on the five acres. Those places too were, they were designed to have your sleeping arrangement in a small space and your daytime encouraging you to come out and gather with everybody, be in the living room, be in the dining room, come together for dining, social dining. You know how much we all love to go to supper together. It's so supportive to all of us to have, to be able to have a meal, to break bread with your family and your friends. And for seniors, it had, it had become the center of the lifestyle in so many places around the world that house big groups of seniors, the congregate living settings were designed to have people sleep in a small space and come out into a larger space during the day. But when all those things stopped, it was really striking to me in talking to our riders who were no longer able to ride with us and had to cancel doctor's appointments, important appointments, cancel eye checkups and treatment for glaucoma and treatment for macular degeneration and checks for their hearing were not able to pick up batteries for a hearing aid or were not able to pick up a prescription. And that was stressful enough that they weren't able to get things done to take care of themselves. But at the same time, it was really stressful to listen to them talk to us about the isolation that they face inside their facility. I spoke to one gentleman who has been, had been a rider with us for about two years and a real cheerleader, real supporter of the service, real happy fella and spread love wherever he was. He's a widower and he very uh, well-traveled, well-read gentleman and very kind to everyone around him. And his story really struck me in that as COVID set in and weeks went by, three weeks, four weeks of isolation in the facility where he lived. It's a beautiful facility in Hall County, but it was definitely designed to have you spend a short period of time in your room. So he was in his 
very small, you know, eight by 10 space permanently. Meals were being delivered to a chair or a tray outside their door for them to pick up and take inside. And through his time in this living situation, he made friends with the lady next door and she was a widow. And they had really been enjoying each other's company at the meals and at the activities to be able to go out on the bus together into town and take trips together. And he described to me one night that they had developed a code where they knock on the wall at night to talk to each other before they go to sleep. And they weren't able to see each other for weeks and weeks and weeks. I don't know that they still, you know, are not restricted from keeping each other company. But it was so sad to me that here they were trapped in a very small space. And then as I started to see more of our riders fall away, and ITN eventually came, ITN Lanier came to the decision that we needed to close down. Our board of directors deliberated long and hard for months about the decision. We knew that we could not sustain this type of nonprofit across the many, many months that it will take to be back in some kind of normal function. And, you know, just as Kim's organization has clearly decided that they will not be in the field until a vaccine, you know, we felt that our riders and drivers were going to still be in jeopardy of high rates of infection as for the foreseeable future. We don't see any end to that. So closing IT and Lanier was just an absolute necessity. We had an awful lot of community support for whatever decisions that we made, you know, including you, Libba, and all the institutions in the community were very supportive. And, and we, were, we were cared for as an organization and valued but there simply was no way to carry this through this, this change that we're all going to see. And in the meantime, as Kim referenced, the daycare organization that I had worked for prior to ITN Lanier has also come to the decision to close permanently. So that, that agency, the guest house, had been an institution here in Gainesville for over 35 years and the pandemic has closed it down. It was not an environment that could have ever been kept clean enough. And our difficulty was that we were serving folks with dementia and all different types of dementia. And we were unable to help them navigate the procedures for social distance, mask wearing, hand cleaning their hands, on a regular basis in that facility, it was difficult to get people to go through the routine of washing their hands and things before and after meals. But in a pandemic like this, it was just going to be impossible. So the staff and the board of directors there made the same decision that ITN had to come to, to just permanently close the service. And as I talked to a few of our riders at ITN about this experience that we're all going through together, but they're going through it very differently. I had some of those folks tell me that it was pretty daunting to think about the fact that for the rest of their lives, this will be the condition. If you're 85 or 93 or 95 or 102 in a pandemic like this, and all the world is so dangerous to you. That's pretty daunting to know that for the rest of your days, this will be our predicament. 
but uh, it also struck me at the same time about how resilient they were. They are. I still am driving personally. My husband and I and a few folks from IT and Lanier are still driving some of our riders, particularly the folks who were the oldest folks that we have who have critical medical procedures they need pain control and eye treatments and things that are necessary for them to have any quality of life and not end up bed bound. We've continued to transport them. And it's been amazing to me to see their stamina for this and their grace and their calm, their sense of acceptance. And I've, I've worked with folks who are in different economic situations. Some, some are, are living in really desperate conditions. And I've also worked with some seniors who are financially well set and able to pay for the services that they need. But what's striking is the fact that they are all so calm and gracious and grateful for any kind of help that they can get. So it's, it's been heartbreakingly inspiring <laughs> to see seniors go through this. That was a really great and thorough explanation of what it's been like. And the the things that come to my mind are, first, you mentioned uh, just the confusion of what do we do as an organization? And of course, in the early months, uh, there was a lot of confusion because we were learning so much about the virus. But was there also confusion about how to stay safe or how to, did you personally feel the lack of, um, I guess, general understanding of what do we do to keep safe? And yes. how, have, how has that experience been for you as the guidance has, has fluctuated so much? I think we all found that we had to, um, we had to figure it out on the go. We had to, you had to figure it out you know, in your car or on the phone with your, your coworkers, you had to figure things out that you've never faced before. And you really don't have a frame of reference for. We were not getting uniformed messages from, from health care. Um, a lot of confusion in the healthcare field too, about what to do that's best. And we were certainly not getting any, any real coherent leadership from government. So we all had to just do our best. And Um, Thank goodness I had other ITN affiliates to work with who had already tried out the protocols, but um, I know one of the first days that I really felt a lot of fear personally for myself, for my staff, and for my drivers and riders, I had taken wonderful uh, woman from a small private assisted living in one end of the county. I had picked her up that day and taken her to a very important medical appointment at one of the local clinics. And when I got her there, I could feel she, she um, is wheel, pretty much wheelchair dependent and needed my help to transfer to, to and from the chair in the car. And we had her heavy wheelchair in my car too. So there was a lot going on logistically with her ride in the first place. But she and I got to the clinic and you could feel in the air, you could, you could see it on the faces of the staff who were meeting us, the nurses who were trying to work, and you could just see, you could feel the environment start to get really frightening and frantic in, in a way. And as I ended up getting her finally to the right spot in the clinic, I had a couple of times that day to actually pick her up physically and transfer her in and out of the chair. 
And when I got back to the office, my manager and I just stopped dead in our tracks and looked at each other because she knew this rider too. And we both looked at me and we thought, oh, this is so dangerous. I don't, I'm not, I'm, I probably have just picked up the virus COVID-19 from maybe from her, maybe she picked it up from me. I picked it up from the nurses. They picked, it was, it was a real chaotic, kind of surreal, kind of a scene that day. And thank goodness for my manager's thinking, you know, she just grabbed a box of Clorox wipes that we still had and just started wiping me down. I mean, she wiped my face, my hair, my clothes, my pen, my keys, everything I had. I went out to my car, wiped it down. It was all I could do. And even then, at that time, we were being told two to three weeks for an incubation period for the virus. And then come to find out later in the day that the woman I had transported had actually been actively having a stroke when I took her that day. And she'd gone to the clinic for a different reason, but because she was at the clinic when it happened, they were able, but they transported her by ambulance away from the clinic to the emergency room at Northeast Georgia Medical Center. And how frightening for her. And we lost track of her for about three weeks because she was admitted and was treated and ended up in a different place for her living situation. But it, it was stunning to me how quickly an older person could get lost in the rush. Uh, the facility where she had been living didn't really know where she was. Her daughter in a different state did not know where she was. We, I was the last person to see her. But we, it was difficult to keep track of her and track her down. So I imagine that as the pandemic grew around the world, millions of those kinds of situations happened to people who were unequipped and unaware of what was about to come over us. We just had no, no way to teach each other what to do. And we just invented things as we went along. That particular day, I called my own doctor and talked with their, their office, their nurses and my physician. I wasn't able to get much advice, even though they're great, but I had a really fortunate thing happen. One of the nurses from the clinic where I took her actually called me back and said, here's what you need to know about what I can tell you today. So that was just kindness. You know, just she had really stepped out of her proper role to call me because I'm not a family member, but she knew how dangerous it was for everybody that day. And she knew I needed reassurance. So thank goodness there was a nurse who, you know, thought quickly about what was the best thing she could do at the time to help, to help everybody out in that situation. So yeah, the early days were, were pretty overwhelming. And is, as the director of the organization, it was my job to try to calm everybody, our riders and our drivers, and, and reassure people as to what we would do moving forward. And I made it up <laughs> and talked to a lot of good people who were also making it up as they went along. And Dr. Beebe helped me think it through a lot. And it came to a very sad stop. The other side of that, and I know with bigger organizations like the Alzheimer's Association, this is being done on a national level, but for us at the local level, we also had finances to consider. We had our bookkeeping to be done and our accounting to be done through this up and down period. One of the benefits of being in a smaller town with community relationships like we have, Peach State Bank stepped in with me really quickly to tell me, 
I mean, as, as an organization, a nonprofit, we had nothing to offer in terms of collateral for a loan, but they helped us step through the process with the Small Business Administration to be able to get a loan so that I could pay my manager for a few more months. I had a paycheck for a few more months, and at least we were able to use that money to get ourselves to a stopping point and to close the business in the best way possible. We had time uh, between the two of us to speak personally to almost 100 of our 150 members. We spoke to over 100 people. We spoke to almost every member that we could locate that had ever taken a ride with us. And we were able, if, if they had some money in an account with us, $19 or $32, we were able to return that money to them. And that was the reassurance at least that someone was doing the honest thing and doing the right thing and returning their money that they had on their account and close the business down properly as it should have been. That was the only thing that, you know, felt any, in any way good about it was that we, we were ethical and deliberate in our effort and we closed it with the most integrity that we could manage. We were not able to refer very many of our riders to any other service because at the same time we became dangerous to, to work with. So did the taxi services and Uber and Lyft and bus services. Everything became more dangerous and, and more confusing to navigate. So I think that what the general public would not understand about the effects of COVID on older, frail seniors that I would want them to know is that it's the little things that are not getting done. I talked with a lady the other day who needs to get someone to come and take her trash to the county facility. She lives in the county pretty far out in her own home. Um, she's financially stable and and living at 94, living by herself on her homestead property, but she cannot get her trash bags taken to the, to the county spot. Little things like that. Her cat, a black cat, prettiest thing, and very devoted to her. And her, her companion needs a special diet, special cat food, and she can't get out or get anyone out to the vet to pick up the food for the cat. Simple things like that, that you and I have been fortunate enough to figure out how to do for ourselves are not being done. And the chips fall, you know, consequences take their course. As Kim said, their caregivers seeing their, their folks decline. These seniors are suffering. I mean, the cat may not make it, you know, little things like that, that are, the chips are just falling and there's been no way to slow that down or stop that. Yeah. I think the other piece of it is when we talked about the logistics of living in a smaller area, it struck me one day that my husband and I have a really small, compact, efficient house that we live in. It's our own home, and um, we have great neighbors on either side. And we are able and have been through the whole pandemic to walk out the front door, take our dogs, walk down the street, and get some air. And we've also been able to walk out the back door to our little small patio and grill a hamburger and get some fresh air outside. Sometimes I sit at night outside on the patio by myself, just watching the sky when I never took time to watch the sky before, but now it's, it's good, you know, 
But we have that luxury. But if you're living in a congregate facility where it's not built that way and you can't walk out a door because it might not be safe if you're trying to keep folks with dementia safe, you, you may not be able to walk out the door. They have been locked down in a way that we, a lot of us can't fathom. It just brings so much to mind. I mean, I, I, I stand here wishing, like, is, is there some kind of compromise? But of course, it's really hard to say. And I know that, you know, even with IT and Linear not open right now, you have yourself, um, you know, still connected with some of those folks that need you. And there is an idea of mutual aid that has arisen through the pandemic, uh, where yes. communities and neighbors help each other. And I'm wondering, like, do you see a future where it's not necessarily the organization, but just simply relying on those relationships? And how can people help during this time if there is any way for them to help? Yes, I certainly hope so, Libba, that it that one of the lessons that our, our country and our society learned through this is that we can and should reach out. It might feel dangerous and it might feel like you're a little vulnerable when you do that, but we can reach out just to one another and, and help out. You can stop and ask somebody if they're okay and it's, it's, worth, it's worth it. And that's the way we're going to all make it. And I think one, one idea on helping seniors, unfortunately, it doesn't work as well with folks with dementia. They are pretty dependent on their caregivers and their families for any kind of support like this. But I think one thing that really seems to be a great idea, and some places are already doing it, having groups, um, say the Boys and Girls Club or Girl Scouts, having groups write to seniors, take pictures of themselves and send to seniors, any way to go back to the old school letter writing, card making, card sending. And we, uh, Kim and I are both members of a networking group for senior providers in North Georgia. And there are about 50 members. And one of the traditional things that this group has always done is a big Christmas party, big senior celebration at one of the local churches with, with businesses supporting us and music and a program and gifts and things and celebrating our seniors and making sure they had safe transportation to the event. We've really been struggling as a group about how to how to recreate that event. Um, and we have decided that we are probably going to try to go and go to the facilities, go to the apartment, go to the house and stand outside and sing or dress up or do something to let them know that we are still out here and we know you're still in there ways to communicate without without any technology involved just people talking to people and writing letters to people that's really great and now is you've covered quite a lot i feel like we've really got a, a fair amount of detail but is there anything that you feel like we haven't addressed i don't think so i i think my hope for post pandemic mm -hmm. is that the all the individual communities that are struggling to put themselves back together will remember seniors and remember people with dementia and maybe we'll have a chance to go at things in a better, um, kind of reinvent things in a nice way, in a better way. The ideas for how seniors with dementia can live with more support from their community, maybe those will be some of the things that will come out of this um, long struggle that we're looking at. 
maybe there'll be some some new ways, better ways, ways that are more flexible to help us stay connected as a community. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dana. That was excellent. And thank you again. Yes, absolutely. This podcast is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to join us on Friday, December 4th for our first annual 24-hour telethon. We'll be showcasing 24 hours of history programs to raise donations for the History Center. Follow us on Facebook for up-to-date details or visit our website at www.negahc.org to view the entire program on our events page.